The Tom Woods Show, episode 1856. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Gary Chartier Week continues. And I suspect there's a possibility anyway that because of the title of this episode, curiosity will be such that people may listen to this one before they listen to the previous one, or maybe even instead of the previous one, we may get a lot of people who just listen to this one. So even though this week I probably won't be repeating Gary's bio in every episode, I do want to make sure that people who listen to this episode are fully aware of who Gary Chartier is. Gary is Distinguished Professor of Law and Business Ethics and Associate Dean of the Business School at La Sierra University. He is author, co-author, editor, or co-editor of 17 current or forthcoming books, including the book A Good Life in the Market, a great business ethics book that we discussed on this program some time ago and also a particular favorite of mine, Anarchy and Legal Order. Gary received a PhD from the University of Cambridge for a dissertation on the nature, spirituality, ethics, and politics of friendship. He graduated with a JD from UCLA, and the University of Cambridge presented him with an earned higher doctorate, an LLD, in 2015 in recognition of his substantial scholarship and status as an authority in legal philosophy. Now, before we get to Gary today, uh, you know that from time to time, I promote a website created by a Tom Woods Show listener or a blog. And here's one that's a little unusual, but I'm sure there are some of you out there who can benefit from this kind of 3D printing service. The company is Auxilia Additive Manufacturing. The website is Auxilia, A-U-X-I-L-I-A-A-M. Dot com And their pitch is something like this. Let us support your operations with highly functional 3D printed parts, be it reproduction of an existing part or iterative development into an end-use product. Start from just a concept or come ready with your own 3D drawing ready to run. And their available materials include nylon, polypropylene, carbon fiber, Kevlar, fiberglass, PLA, PETG, various flexible filaments, and ASA for UV and humidity-resistant projects. Coming soon, stainless steel, cryptocurrency payments accepted. So check them out at auxiliaam.com. I'll link to this site on the show notes page for today, tomwoods.com slash 1856. And if you would like to get promotion of a site you're thinking of creating, all you have to do is use my link to get your web hosting. You get a great price, plus you get promotion from me and some other really great benefits that will give you a nice boost out of the gate. Get the details at tomwoods.com slash publicity. All right, now let's get into the second episode of Gary Chartier Week. Gary, welcome back. Hi, Tom. All right, we're going to talk about a term that gets thrown around all the time, left libertarianism. And as you say, it can mean different things. So let's try to narrow down, because sometimes it's people use it, and even even I use sometimes use it to mean people who have certain cultural commitments we associate with the left. But that's not really what it is in its fundamental. And there are some people who just are that and don't have these other ideas. But left libertarianism is actually a thing, I mean, and it's actually – it is a series of discrete ideas, or distinct ideas rather, that you know, deserve to be addressed and that are, are certainly within the, the libertarian tradition. We're going to talk about some of those. Now, I'm going to link at tomwoods.com slash 1856 to a blog post of yours from all the way back in 2012 outlining some of the – let's say the principal concerns of left libertarians, not to say that this, these are the only things they care about. 
but that these may be the defining factors as to what makes somebody a, a left libertarian. So toward the end, I think, as I'm remembering this right, you say something like, left libertarianism is kind of also a way for people who are on the left, who have some of the concerns we associate with the left, to break with that and yet not have to give up the kinds of things that that move them, that concern them. They can still pursue those concerns, but in a libertarian context. So can you introduce the idea to us? Absolutely. So if people wander around the web, they're going to find at least three and maybe more different uses of left libertarian. And they just have to be aware that uh, these are related, but quite distinct. And so broadly speaking, there are you know, you've got three families of views that are united at best by saying they're well, they're all they're all anti-authoritarian, and they've all got some sorts of broadly speaking leftish concerns. So everything from anarcho-communism of one kind or another—that's sometimes called left libertarianism. You know, a contemporary sort of Georgist view is often called left libertarianism, a view that tries to combine self-ownership of the person with uh, some kind of common ownership of land that gets uh, gets labeled as left libertarianism. And then there's the sort of left libertarianism that my colleagues and I have been most interested in, which is, broadly speaking, left market anarchism. So this is a view that is uh, unequivocally anti-state, will allow a potential exception for uh, uh, the occasional person who isn't sure uh, just how radically anarchist uh, to be. But uh, in general, we're uh, unequivocally anti-state and pro-market, and at the same time interested in embracing a set of concerns that we identify as uh, concerns on the political left. Now, we know that within libertarianism, there's been a long history of trying to deconstruct and reclaim bits of the the left-right political spectrum. And there's uh, been, for instance, uh, you know, Rothbard's characterization of the left-right spectrum as uh, a movement from, you know, anti-authoritarianism on the left to authoritarianism on the on the right uh, back in the back in the 60s uh, and so forth. But what I've tried to do, at least, is to propose something like the following. And I recognize that this characterization of the left isn't everybody's characterization of the left, and there are absolutely uh, strands of uh, thought and activism on the left that tilt in rather different directions. But what I tried to do was to capture what I thought were central concerns, especially of the new left in the US uh, and uh, perhaps elsewhere in the 60s, very much not the old left, of the 30s and beyond with its Stalinist sympathies, but the the new left that uh, drew together the anti-war movement and uh, concerns about uh, racial inclusion and uh, gender equality and so forth, I suggested in a piece a long time ago that we could sort of distill from the uh, practice and uh, the theoretical commitments of the new left something like the following concerns with exclusion, subordination, deprivation, and war. So the attempt to move beyond those, to move beyond exclusion by uh, seeking uh, social practices that tell people that uh, their skin color or uh, their nationality or you know whatever pick your pick whatever characteristics you want to mention don't keep you from being 
for being welcome here, uh, subordination that uh, we don't want, social practices that uh, involve uh, involve pushing others around, and ideally, as we talked about in our last uh, conversation, Tom, uh, structural changes might uh, make those even less likely. Deprivation really would want both to increase overall societal prosperity and also to support institutions that deal with those who, despite increased prosperity, remain vulnerable. And uh, war, uh, certainly to push back in the name of peace against against war and empire. And so those I take to be the uh, defining features, opposition to those uh, kind of social, uh, social ills, I take to be the defining features of what I intend when I talk about a uh, position on the left, and uh, in turn, a libertarian position, again, I take to be, uh, in this case, a radically pro-market and anti-state position. And so left libertarian then, as I use the term, is a term for somebody who is uh, simultaneously and unapologetically pro-market and anti-state, and at the same time takes on board those uh, commitments that I claim to have distilled from, from the new left. Okay, so therefore you're saying that a left libertarian will have some of the concerns, or maybe all the concerns, that people on the left have, you know, at least claimed to have, mm-hmm. but say that the difference would be that we have a different approach to how to solve these problems, and we also are more likely to think that a free society in the sense that we mean it, in which there's no monopoly body that can exercise coercion in a way that's considered legitimate by the public, we predict that that would have better results than maybe the traditional left might think it would. And we might also, you know, we might look at the state differently, like its origins, its purpose, its you know, what what really goes on, what politicians are really up to. And it's, no, it's not what was in your third grade textbook about how a bill becomes a law and people have vigorous debate about it and then they make up their minds. There's nobody who goes to testify in Congress who changes anybody's mind, except maybe Mr. Rogers that one time. <laughs> Otherwise, everybody have their, their minds made up before they even hear it. So am I on the right track? Absolutely. I think uh, the... Um view that you describe reflects a kind of naivete that it's really disappointing to see, you know, otherwise thoughtful and perceptive people continue to embrace the idea that, you know, government is just what we all do together. That sort of, uh, you know, I think thoroughly civics class infused naivete that I think we ought to be, we ought to be very, very doubtful about. Now, to be clear, there are principled people on the left who, while they certainly haven't uh, kind of bought our uh, convictions regarding uh, the importance and the value of markets, nonetheless, don't buy that notion either. And you certainly see more radical people on the left very much aware of the uh, alliance between economic and political elites and uh, the uh, genuinely and uh, consistently mischievous nature of, of state power. It's just that sometimes I fear people who take that position and uh, embrace it enthusiastically with respect to foreign policy issues or national security state issues, you know, even civil liberties issues, then somehow conclude that it's quite consistent with uh, taking that very skeptical view of the state to somehow imagine that, well, we get the right people in charge and we'll fix the economy. 
And there's a there's a really uh, sort of odd uh, willingness to take that position on the part of some people. But I do just want to emphasize that uh, the uh, civics class naivete that you rightly highlight is certainly not the position of some more thoughtful people on the left. Uh, yeah, are- oh, and I know that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you can't read Counterpunch for any length of time without realizing that they get it on a, a level that even I think there are some naive members of conservatism, Inc., who still think if they if I write to my congressman, yeah, you know, I, okay, well, if you, <laughs> I can't stop you from writing to your congressman, but <laughs> for heaven's sake, especially if you're not in the district, that just goes right in the trash anyway. <laughs> They're not even going to consider. You're not even going to get the form letter <laughs> if it's not even in the district. So let's talk about something now that I remember Roderick Long saying a long time ago. I don't know where he said it, but he said something like this: that because there was for a while some kind of robust debate going on about. And it's tiresome to me now, but at the time I was very interested in it, between so-called thick and thin libertarianism. And I had this view that in order to be a libertarian, you just have to believe in the non-aggression principle. You can be the biggest jackass in the world, but as long as you believe in the non-aggression principle, that makes you a libertarian. Now, the thick people, I might not have been giving them, treating them properly because – I don't know that they were necessarily saying that in order to be a libertarian, you also have to be a feminist or this, that, or the other thing, or otherwise you're not a libertarian. What I think they were instead saying was that, okay, you don't strictly have to be those things, but that if we want in the long run to promote a culture that's going to be hospitable to a free society, then in addition to the non-aggression principle, it's important for us to have these other commitments. Now, again, you don't have to have them to be a member of the club, but we care about more than just determining membership in a club. We care about creating a good, sustainable society that has the cultural values that are conducive to freedom. So therefore, we need to have these other commitments. Is, do you think that's the correct way of understanding that debate? So I certainly agree, Tom, that the proponents of thick libertarianism I know well, we're not saying, and I think would not say, you only qualify as a libertarian if you take on board this range of ethical or cultural commitments. One thing I'd want to emphasize, of course, as was clear from the beginning of that discussion, one would not want to assume that the only sort of thick libertarianism is left libertarianism, right? Because you can clearly have the view that only, let's say, by embracing a full-on objectivist morality, for instance, can you be uh, an authentic libertarian, or only if you take on a certain kind of social conservatism can you be... Yeah, right. Yeah, there are definitely other varieties of it. That's right. So, but in any case, uh, you know, I think it often became associated with views, particularly on the left, because, you know, Charles Johnson, uh, who is, of course, unequivocally a left libertarian, was the person who really articulated the view most. And it was in turn, I think, something he'd worked out uh, originally as Roderick's student. And so Roderick, uh, of course, who's a left libertarian, then was associated with that. But I think more generally about the relationship between a range of both strategic and ideological uh, uh, commitments, that the relationship between those and libertarianism understood as, you know, straightforward, you know, anti-state, anti-aggression, you know, politics. So I think you're right to say None of the people I'm aware of would want to say you only get to be a member of the club, uh, you know, if you take this view. Rather, the thought would be, you know, Charles lays out in the most developed version of his uh, position, I think, six different connections, you know, that might obtain between various things other than, you know, narrow uh, non-aggression uh, 
the libertarianism that might include everything from just you know, ideas might just be tacked together to to the best explanation for libertarianism is X, and X also implies some other things to strategic kinds of uh, things of the sort that you were mentioning. We're most likely to have the right kind of society if we also push the following and so forth. So I think you're you're right that uh, it's not a matter of uh, determining who gets a club key. Okay, so now I have um, a scenario I want to get your opinion on because I have a feeling, even though I think I'm stacking the deck by telling you this in advance, but there are people I encounter on Twitter who are easy to to label as, quote, left libertarians, but probably none of them have read Charles Johnson or you or even know you guys. They're just kind of, well, let me be a little vulgar here, posters on Twitter. Okay, (laughs) That's basically... and I'm, by the way, I'll have my audio guy. We'll, we'll bleep that out. I'm going to bleep out my own word. That was just for you. Your ears only, Gary. Okay. Anyway, and like they will say things like, and I just have a feeling that you would have a more sophisticated view of this. They'll say things like, for example, when Alex Jones got basically deplatformed from everywhere. Well, I don't, I don't ever listen to Alex Jones. That, that thought would never occur to me. It would never dawn on me. Today, I have to go see what Alex Jones thinks. That thought would never occur to me. And I understand that, by and large, these are private companies. They can do what they want. But as a left libertarian, I think it would be very weird for people like you to say, it's a private company. It can do what it wants. When half of your critique is a lot of private companies act like jerks. And so my initial response certainly is not, I mean, doesn't mean a private company is always wrong, but my initial knee-jerk response is not going to be, well, I'm sure we can trust the decisions of that corporation. (laughs) You know, like that wouldn't be your initial response. So my concern would be, even though I don't watch Alex Jones, I think he's probably said some fairly reprehensible things. He's also said some true things. That's true. But it does not affect my life in any way that he's gone. But I think it's short-sighted to say, oh, good, because he's, I'm sure that will, I'm sure they'll just confine themselves to Alex Jones and the real extremists. I think in the same way that left libertarians say that in order to build up a robust free society, we also need to have commitments to certain other things. Well, I think one of those commitments should be that, yes, even though they are private companies, we should still be encouraging freedom of expression and freedom of thought. And when I say that, I'm, accused of being a shill for Alex Jones or don't I know that the market has spoken because some corporation decided. I don't think these people would say when Woolworths had segregated lunch counters that, oh, that's the free market. The market has spoken. I guess you can't criticize that. I'm allowed to criticize it. As a libertarian, if, if my steak is undercooked, I can send it back. You know, I don't have to say, well, I guess that's the market. Who am I to say? So I feel like this is another cultural commitment we should have because if we get in the habit of celebrating that somebody we don't like has been silenced in some way, I think that has a chilling effect that could lead to much worse things for people we maybe we do like down the road. Now, how do you feel about all this? Yeah, so I think like you, I don't have any you know substantive investment in uh, the future of, of Alex Jones as a, as a public spokesperson. But I do think that he was, uh, in some sense, the canary in the coal mine. Right. I think that uh, we really saw after the, uh, the banning of, uh, of Alex Jones from Twitter, after the, the banning of, of Milo, who I think, you know, says a lot of reprehensible things. And I, I'm not at all defending any substantive claim made by either of those guys. But I think that banning them really uh, set a bad precedent. And uh, 
if you have the view, as I do, that corporate authoritarianism is bad news, and if you've spent a fair amount of time trying to argue that libertarianism should take uh, you know, corporate authoritarianism more seriously, not less, then I think you should agree that uh, using corporate uh, power to shut down voices uh, like theirs is bad news. You know, undoubtedly, to some extent, the behavior of uh, corporations that, uh, that do silence people is a reflection of fears of state intervention. So I don't, I don't think this is just, as it were, the market operating in isolation. I think there really are worries uh, that you know protections for uh, social media platforms might be taken away and so forth. But allowing for all of that, I think that we can absolutely criticize the behavior of corporations just uh, on its own as being uh, antithetical to the kind of wide open conversation I think we ought to want to, want to be able to have. I wrote a, a book uh, in 2018 called An Ecological Theory of Free Expression, in which I tried to talk about what an ecology of expression might look like and uh, to suggest that this had had multiple roots, that it might have roots in concerns with property rights, but also in worries about who exercised state power, kind of concerned with, with uh, libertarian class theory, with autonomy, with a desire to uh, expand the range of, uh, of ideas uh, available in, in conversation and so forth. So a range of interlocking factors. Some of those factors undoubtedly and rightly limit state action in particular. But others are relevant to the behavior of private entities and give us reason to engage in, uh, you know, I think in, in ethical criticism of the behavior of those private entities. And uh, so I talked uh, at some length there about corporate efforts to, to stifle intra-corporate speech. The book came out right before, I think, all of the uh, worries about uh, social media platforms became uh, front and center. And I'm sorry that it came out too early for me to really have uh, confronted some of those issues directly. But I think, I think they deserve to be confronted. Many of the underlying commitments that uh, I think we rightly make with respect to, to freedom of speech are ones that should lead us to be critical of, of uh, corporations that are inhospitable to expression. Hey, everybody, let's take a minute to thank our sponsor, Policy Genius. Spring is springing all around us, and isn't that a perfect metaphor for the need to tidy up and get our lives in order? Well, why not start by protecting your family with life insurance, which you know all Woods has been reminding you time and again is an important part of adulthood, so you go and do it. And it's easy to do with Policy Genius. They can help you compare top insurers in one place and save you 50% or more. So here's how you get started. You just go to policygenius.com, and almost immediately, you're working out how much coverage you need, and you're comparing quotes and finding the best price. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare policies from as little as $15 a month. And you might even be eligible to skip the in-person medical exam. Their licensed agents work for you, not the insurance companies. So there's no hassle. If you hit any speed bumps during the application process, Policy Genius takes care of everything for you. And the best part, all the benefits of Policy Genius, the comparison tool, the handling of paperwork, the unbiased advice are totally free to use. So while you're tidying up around the house this spring, why not get your life insurance organized too? You could save 50% or more by comparing quotes and feel good knowing that if something happens, your loved ones will be taken care of. Go to policygenius.com to get started. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right.
I think it's easy to have a naive view that, well, if you're not an obnoxious jerk, no one's going to come after you. Just a couple of weeks ago, Twitter banned hundreds of accounts, and one of the justifications for banning them was that, quote, they focused on undermining faith in the NATO alliance yeah. and its stability. I mean, what? I remember that. Uh, I, I mean, that's straight out of 1984. I mean, what? Oh, well, I mean, of course, we all know the NATO alliance. You can make fun of any, you can ridicule and blaspheme and do whatever you want to things people hold sacred. But that NATO alliance, that thing, you can't say a word against. Good grief. Agreed. All right. So that's all fairly easy stuff. All right. Well, good, good, good. I'm, I'm glad we um, got that through. So I'm actually looking at this list you've made of things that leftists are concerned about. And it actually, the funny thing is it makes me think, huh, I, I guess I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not that far <laughs> as I thought. So, you know, class analysis and class struggle, we've talked about that in the past because there are classes, but they're just not that, you know, we have a different class analysis than say Marx has, but there's no doubt about it that the existence of the state creates opposing classes. And then, yeah, I'm against corporate privilege, structural poverty. Well, I, I take that to mean poverty that's created by various forms of state intervention. But here, though, you have affirming wealth redistribution. Okay, how does that work in a libertarian context? Yeah, so, um, you know, I wrote a piece uh, many years ago that I later incorporated in Anarchy and Legal Order called Libertarians for Redistribution, which uh, probably was a, a kind of deliberately in-your-face title. But so I had in mind the following, right, that number one, wealth gets redistributed when privileges are eliminated. And uh, those uh, state-secured uh, privileges that are provided uh, to cartels of, of various sorts, to uh, you know, occupational groups uh, that uh, benefit in special ways from their relationship with the state, to uh, corporations that get subsidies or that benefit from trade restrictions uh, and so forth. So first of all, eliminate those and wealth is uh, likely to be redistributed. Secondly, the ongoing operation of the market uh, then in the absence of those kinds of privileges further winnows away the uh, profits that uh, some folks might gain might gain unjustly. Further then, I suggested that uh, there might be uh, room for the kind of redistribution that uh, Rothbard talks about uh, in uh, in that essay, Confiscation and the Homestead Principle. That you know some kinds of state secured uh, titles really just shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be affirmed. And then finally, redistribution happens through mutual aid networks in a uh, in a libertarian society as people uh, cooperate to. Uh, help those who uh, who are vulnerable. So that's the kind of redistribution that, that I have in mind, not, not redistribution by the state and not redistribution by, uh, I don't know, violent gangs who happen not to like what you have, but uh, redistribution that's affected by eliminating state-secured privilege and freeing up opportunities for people to assist each other. When we think about people who come into the libertarian world, what would be this isn't any kind of gotcha question. I'm genuinely curious. What would be your estimate as to how many of them, I mean, some people are born libertarian. That was not me. I immediately slipped into very conventional ways of thinking until somebody bludgeoned me over the head. But so leaving out the people who are lucky enough to be born into this, didn't have to struggle for 40 years, you know, I, and I know that there are problems with the left-right thing, but people do identify with that stuff. I think most people are coming from the right and I think not as many from the left, but there definitely are 
And I've even had people say that I brought them in from the left. And I, you know, I tend to talk to the right-wing people because I feel like you're making the same stupid mistakes I made and it's causing me pain yeah. to watch you make them. That's why I, I talk to them. But I've had people say, oh yeah, you converted me from this, that, or the other. I don't know how. I'm glad they were open-minded enough to listen to me. But do you agree with me that probably my gut instinct that more people are coming from the right? Yeah, so the answer is, yeah, probably that's right right now. I think we know that there have been historical shifts, you know, at different times. The folks we might think of, you know, as, you know, as intellectual ancestors in the 19th century, you think about everybody from Herbert Spencer to uh, Benjamin Tucker might well in different ways have identified with, uh, you know, social and political move- movements then that would have seemed uh, much more uh, clearly to the left. And I think that's that's probably been more true uh, more recently, even say, uh, you know, probably in the 60s. So right now, I'm sure you're right. I don't think there's anything kind of necessary or essential about that. And it probably does have something to do not with the inherent nature of of libertarianism, but with uh, broader cultural patterns uh, and how people uh, how people respond to those. And also, of course, how the libertarian movement tends to to sell itself. Yeah, so that's kind of what I'm driving at. I mean, yeah, it may be that right now more people are coming, you know, more people are, let's say, ex-Republicans or something like that. But the numbers there even are not really that great. You know, I mean, in terms of people coming into the libertarian world, I mean, there are more than there were 20 years ago, and I'm really happy about that. But I mean, when you think about how compelling our ideas are, I mean, look, we stand for peace and and, uh, prosperity and, you know, we have against us, we have... I don't know, just we have institutions that to me just seem so comic bookish and obviously evil. And But I mean, what we're teaching that a message that is to me so beautiful and compelling and intellectually rich and intellectually satisfying when you encounter it. And we're not on the side of the the war party or the really creepy politicians or anything like that. We're on the side of you know, frankly, a lot of obscure people who just devoted their lives to spreading these ideas. And, you know, and we get accused of being the lackeys of the rich. But, you know, look, most of us are of very modest means. I don't come across a huge number of wealthy libertarians. Most of the wealthy tend to want to preserve the status quo. They don't want to adopt some radical ideology. But I think we have a, a not a very good image to the general public. And it's not, I think, because of perceived racism or anything like that. It's that we're perceived as being the enablers of the powerful and we don't care about the downtrodden. It's frustrating to me that we haven't made more progress. So my question wasn't aimed at, well, the right wing is doing better. It's still, the numbers are pathetic. We should be a majority at this point. How do you account for why more people on the left, now that they have a pathway into the libertarian world, haven't followed that pathway? I think it's a great question, Tom. I wish that the work of a few intellectuals who've articulated a great path to libertarianism uh, for people on the left uh, got more attention. But I'm afraid that, number one, there's still too much kind of instinctive association in the minds of people on the left of libertarianism with support for fat cats. Second, I think some folks on the left see opportunistic libertarians 
uh, who really uh, perhaps are associated with some social movements and uh, tendencies that uh, they might uh, really uh, find problematic, that they see those opportunistic libertarians as representative libertarians. And I think that's, that's not right. And I also think a lot of people on the left uh, simply have just become so accustomed to assuming that... Uh, you know, politics looks like this. Politics is getting the state to do things that it's just very difficult uh, to see uh, libertarians as anything but irrelevant. And I don't think there's a, a simple response to that other than the need for continued conversation and coalition building and uh, the demonstration that uh, we really are sincere in our agreement uh, with them about issues like war and empire and uh, opposition to corporate privilege. And, uh, you know, I think just uh, waiting to see what, uh, you know, what happens there. Well, I'm going to link to the um, post about this topic that you sent me that people can look at, tomwoods.com slash 1856. I'll have the link there. I also want to link to an ecological theory of free expression. I did not know about this work. So I'll put that down on that page. So I'm, you know, here I am having a week with you. I should have known about that, but I'll put that down as well. And we have more juicy topics to come in Gary Chartier week. Thanks for your time today, Gary. All right, folks, that's our episode for today. Remember, the 2000th episode of The Tom Woods Show is coming up later this year. And as we did for the 1000th episode, we're having a wonderful live event in person in Orlando, October 16th of this year, 2021. And it will feature some of your favorites from The Tom Woods Show. A lot of fun and laughter and getting to know new people. It's going to be a couple of hours of solid entertainment that is just going to be unforgettable. If you were at the 1,000th episode, you know what a great time we all had. Well, this one is bigger and better. So save the date, October 16th. Tickets are free. This is my gift to you. We're having it at an amazing, beautiful property in Orlando. And I'll have the registration page up soon. As I say, it doesn't cost you anything, but it would help me if you registered just so I can get a sense of the numbers we're looking at. We had a huge crowd last time. We're hoping to do even better than that this time. So save the date, October 16th, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.